you see the sparkle in their eye. It's so wonderful to be able to teach them. It's not like kids just need to apply themselves more. I couldn't imagine how I would be producing if I was put into their situation. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. This, of course, is the famous opening paragraph of the Dickens classic, A Tale of Two Cities. It is an exploration of the dualities, both in society and within all of us. It is often taught in our high schools, which is fairly ironic. After all, few other places in our society represent a more extreme duality or inequity. But of course, that's not how it was supposed to be. Horace Mann, the father of public education in the United States, once wrote, Education, then, beyond all other devices of human origin, is the great equalizer of the conditions of men, the balance wheel of the social machinery. For all of our best intentions, this is not the case even in the best of times. In the worst of times, like this pandemic, education's equalizing force is further blunted. Nationally and locally, here on Long Island, the inequities within our education system can be found by almost any measure. Class size, per student spending, building amenities, technology, disciplinary practices, test scores, and graduation rates, and on and on and on. The roots of these differences run deep and involve a myriad of complicated factors that seem almost impossible to disentangle. Chief amongst them is the de facto segregation of our schools. This is a segregation not simply of students by race or income, but also of resources and opportunities. Rather than address the systemic issues, our default is often to lay the burden at the feet of our educators. They are left to try to fix the broken ladder of social mobility so that their students might have an opportunity to climb. This is the story of a day in the life of two of them. This is A Tale of Two Teachers. I'm Bob McKinnon, the host of the podcast Attribution, and you're listening to A Tale of Two Teachers. This WLIW special program is distributed in part by Chasing the Dream, a public media initiative from PBS flagship station WNET in New York, reporting on poverty, justice, and economic opportunity in America. You can learn more at pbs.org slash chasing the dream and on the WLIW FM website at WLIW.org slash radio. Major funding for Chasing the Dream is provided by the JPB Foundation with additional funding from the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund. Today I'm talking with two teachers. Married, they share both a profession and a life. They grew up on Long Island and attended public school here. They've taught at several schools along the island during their 20 plus year career. And their children are also products of the public school system. They've asked to remain anonymous. So for the sake of this interview, I'll be referring to them as Tim and Amy. We'll also not be referencing any of their specific schools by name. We're choosing not to name the teachers or the schools for both privacy reasons and to minimize our natural tendency to prejudge. After all, this is not a story about good schools or bad schools, good or bad teachers, good or bad students, good parents or bad parents, or even good or bad neighborhoods. It's not about anything good or bad. It's about the potential and opportunity afforded to all of our children. Here's our conversation. 
Did you both meet before you were teachers or after you were teachers? Before. We had gone to the same school, never really knew each other, but I was actually working in Manhattan. We met about the time that I had decided, okay, done with the city, ready to start my education. Well, I knew you a lot longer than that. There was a time where I was telling my classmates that I was going to marry her. (laughs) (laughs) I liked the fact that she was into teaching and the kind of life that we could have together as teachers. I have this image that you wake up and you get ready and you go to school and literally you go in different directions on the island. One travels east and one travels west. I, I was wondering if you could just describe your drive. No matter what makes our districts similar, our drives are completely opposite. Right. I'm going into a very congested part, central part of the island. It's a lot of closely congested neighborhoods in between industrial parks. It's definitely a, a location where you're between highways and easy to get to and from the city. I have to say a, a beautiful piece of mine is I travel east. The drive, there's nothing better than drinking my coffee into the sunrise, out to work and into the sunset on my way home from work. How was school today? I had a great day today. I had to leave my class to have a conference with a parent and child and all of her teachers because she was in jeopardy of failing from her mom having COVID and having to take care of her younger siblings. I just was so happy with the result because the problem was that she was going to probably have to go to summer school and miss out on her family trip to visit her grandparents in Canada and her father. I didn't want her to think that any of her late assignments, she was still failing my class, but she could make up every assignment and get full credit for it based on what she had been through. And all of her missing assignments are mostly from those days when she was sick or caring for the sick. So this little girl really needed some sort of break. That's great. And Tim, how was your day? It was uh, it was difficult. I'm working now with coming up with lists for the current failing seniors that are not going to be passing for the year. And the numbers are very high for me. There's so many of my students, I, I know the personal stories to them and why they've been out and the hardships. And it's really difficult to fail them when the times that they were able to come to school, they're always there. They're on They're on point. They're doing their work. It's a lot of research, a lot of trying to contact the parents, contacting the students, trying to make sense of this scene, if we could work something out. It's almost like it's wheeling and dealing at this point. Over the course of your teaching career, I know that you've taught at various schools. I was wondering if you could just sort of speak to the breadth of your experience and, and maybe Tim, starting with you, because I know you had a very interesting experience when you were interviewing for your first job. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, that experience and the choice? I was going through the interviewing process and I I made it down to me and one other person for two different districts. One district that I'm currently still working in, obviously the one I chose, and another district that is the polar opposite. One district is very wealthy. I would say the the average parents of the school are of a higher income and maybe educational level than the teaching staff that the district is working in. The other district that I worked in um, was the opposite. It's a, a low social economic class, overpopulated, constantly stretched for budget concerns for running of the school, getting proper programs. There was a different student clientele in both districts. With the interviewing process, I just felt more at home 
in the district that I, I wound up in because I, I felt like my need could be there more. I felt the need with the students would be more rewarding, more challenging and rewarding. 20 years later, you still feel good about your choice? Yes, without a doubt. It's, it's what the kids have given me. I guess the, the level of empathy that I swim in working in this district has, has definitely made me a better parent. Amy, your your experience has been a little bit more diverse, right, in terms of the different kinds of school systems. Do you uh, talk a little bit about that? When I first started teaching the first two districts that I was involved in for a number of years were very homogeneous, smaller schools, a lot of parent involvement, just not as mixed as as what I experience now in the district that I'm in. So finding this next district was really a better fit for me, knowing that I have a lot to offer them, but also experiencing the diversity. I was wondering if you could describe your students a little, not necessarily by how they look or, or things like that, but how you see you know their hopes, their aspirations, their dreams. I have so many... So many students that have such a drive and such an internal motivation to do well. It's humbling to see, getting to know them and learning their stories at home and their responsibilities of what they have to do at home to chip in. A lot of my students do not have a lot of downtime. They have lots of responsibilities. They have jobs. A lot of times they're taking care of younger siblings at home. Being in the pandemic, it has even, I think, made it more so because they are, some of them are in a hybrid mode, so they're coming in every other day. So there's a daycare situation at home that they could be a part of. And as a teacher, I see a lot of those students are unstoppable. Like they're going to get the work done. They struggle. They, they might have a hard time, but they'll get right back up and keep working. So I have that. And then I have a lot of students that are really caught in, I guess I say it's like a street mentality. They explain to me a lot how I just don't understand them because of where they live and how they have to live. And I feel like they don't feel like they have much going for them. Their aspirations are to get a job, just to make money. And they don't even realize what kind of money is money to live off of as long as they're making money. A lot of them have difficulty finding jobs. They can't, they don't have transportation to get to a place. So I see students where they don't understand the potential that's out there for them. And then I see the students that know it and are going after it. I have a variety. I have quite a variety as well. I don't know how it has turned to this, but it just seems that I am blessed with really great students. I have a nice portion of students that are like first generation immigrants. You see the sparkle in their eye. It's so wonderful to be able to teach them because you can tell whatever way you reach them, this is it. They're grasping for whatever they can. The one thing that has been really upsetting this year with the pandemic is some of my best students. I saw this disconnect with the way this learning turned into remote learning and on the Chromebooks. It really affected a certain percentage of students, maybe like 25% at least. A plus students, maybe not passing, not getting promoted till the next year. But this is a temporary thing. It was, you know, primarily this year. Otherwise, I, I don't have a year like that. It's interesting, you know, when you say, or use a term like the sparkle in their eye, you can see it in yours as well. 
you know, this notion of like, that's what teaching is all about, right? When you actually see a student pick up the material and learn and, and enjoy it. It seems fundamental to teaching and that all students have the opportunity to learn. Yet you live in an area where it's safe to say that not all children have the same opportunities. And I'm wondering if you could speak to how much your students get that or their parents, like that they have more challenges or different opportunities or that other schools that are located, you know, just miles away have different facilities or opportunities that maybe they're not able to enjoy. They see it clear as day. A lot of my students who are on sports, they'll go to other districts where the money's there and there's the sports fields. Uniforms. The kids' cars drive into school in the parking lots of these districts. They they pick up on all of that. There's so many students that are not even comparing the differences. They know the differences, but I almost feel like they don't even realize they deserve that piece of that success as well when they see that. It's almost like that's for them and this is for us. I think they're able to see that long range also. You know, there are so many students that are, they're thinking just about what are we going to have for dinner tonight? Or are we going to be able to go to our senior prom? Can we afford that? They have very short range goals because they don't have a lot behind them. Some are starting from scratch. I had a student come to me today I misread him for a large portion of the year until just a couple of weeks ago. He told me he hadn't seen his parents since last February because he had come over here and his parents' flight was canceled at the shutdown. It was the third week in March that his parents were coming and they have just finally arrived as of this last Thursday. You know, he's missed school a couple of times. He came into my room talking on his phone and I... And at first I thought, strange, why is he talking on the phone in the middle of school day? He came up to me and said, I I speak to my mom at this time every day because this is when she's off and I haven't seen her. So I feel like there's a portion in both of our schools of students that are living like that day to day. You're listening to A Tale of Two Teachers. This WLIW-FM special program is distributed in part by Chasing the Dream a public media initiative from PBS flagship station WNET in New York, reporting on poverty, justice, and economic opportunity in America. We're talking with two Long Island teachers who have shared their experience teaching during the pandemic and the extraordinary challenges their students face. Our conversation now shifts to how those experiences differ from what other parents or teachers face each day. And I'm, I'm going to guess you probably have friends on the island who are professionals whose children have different experiences. I'm just wondering as professionals, when you have these conversations with other people, whether they appreciate the extent to which their children's experience may be different than the ones that you see each day in school. We do have people that I think view things the way that we do. And then we have a lot that do not. They make a judgment call from their position in life. And from day one with their children. They have to go this route. They have to go this direction for schooling. And I think it's more of fear. I do think that the children of these families do feel the stress of school and still producing. When you're talking about doing your homework while you're hungry because you don't have food at home, you can't compare. Mm. You cannot compare that kind of hardship. 
although I think we've done a very good job raising our kids, I know that my children's skin is not thick enough for that kind of wrench to be thrown into their lives. Their comfort pulled out from underneath them. And you see that with our kids. That's why they, I think a lot of them, if you ask them, what is an old age? You ask them like, what, what do you think a life extends? Like, how long do you think you'll live? I try to have a lot of communication with my students in school. And it's just blows my mind how, how they just clearly cannot see themselves in a far distance future. There's some unintended consequences in what you say and what you've experienced, which is that I think you've, you've called them strivers a couple of times, which is a certain segment of the students who, in spite of their challenges, are able to overcome whatever is in front of them and sort of work and to make the most of the opportunities that are in front of them. And some might hear that and think that the solution is that more students just have to work harder like they do, which sort of is classic with the way in which we look at any struggle in America. You know, if you just bootstrap it, you can overcome whatever systemic issues may be in existence. And and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I don't think that's what you're sort of saying. It's just sort of that somehow, in spite of everything, these kids have done it. And perhaps we shouldn't ask as much of 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 year olds to have to sort of do that to get a, a, a basic right, like a good education. It's not like kids just need to apply themselves more. I couldn't imagine how I would be producing if I was put into their situation. That's how I judge and how I handle teaching and, and dealing with some of these students. When I hear about their stories, like well, as a child, where would I have been? Going through losing a parent and then losing an uncle that lives in the same home. Four months of back and forth being quarantined, infection in a home, back and forth. That ability to keep your schooling going, taking care of your siblings, dealing with the death in the family. And these kids are, they're doing very well. Their grades are good. Do you have friends that teach in other districts that maybe have more resources or different student populations? And, and what are those conversations like? Yeah. We have to, it's like we're working two different jobs. We often know? say it would, we have very good friends that this other couple has a world of a difference in in teaching environments. And we joked about it recently with them. It would be so neat to just swap schools for the day. You know, wh why can't we check out another school and, <laughs> and see what their life is like? If we have students and ambassadors and <clears throat> things like that, I thought it would be really neat. I don't agree. I'm staying where I'm at. So. Yeah. See, I, I would love to check it out. When you hear friends who teach in other districts and are concerned about parents who are coming down on what people would describe as helicopter parenting, right? Do you have a, a conversation about the relative challenges you face? It's eye-opening for a lot of them. And it's also the same, same aspect for us because we're like, oh, that's what that world is like. Discussion is the key to everything. People get wrapped up in what they're doing. If you're busy and you're working in a certain path, it's, it's very easy to lose sight of what else is going around you. Some suggest that education is sort of the great equalizer. It's like an engine of social mobility. That's part of the purpose of, of, of education. And I wonder as teachers whether you feel that's an unfair burden to try to have to compensate for a lot of society's ills on so many other levels and how you feel one when you're able to actually do that, even though it may not be 
part of the job description or other times where perhaps you feel as if you've failed or haven't been able to sort of do what maybe unfair expectations other put upon the profession? The expectations are considered that all students are equal and that's not the case. How do you score and how do you test students depending on their backgrounds? How, how would you create something like that? Success can be measured in many ways. If you could even out the playing field, I think a lot of my students would really clean house compared to other students just because of tenacity and their drive. What would it look like if you swapped children from one district to another for a week? Because I imagine many parents maybe they sort of espouse values of equality and justice. Yet if push came to shove and they were asked, hey, we're going to send your kids just for a week to these other schools, do you have any sense of how that would be received? I'm more of a pessimist <laughs> in my views. So I, I think on the surface, like it would be looked at as okay or, but I don't, I don't know when it finally came down to it, how many children would be sent. Yeah, it would take a special child, you depending know, on the direction. They actually. did do this in my school district a few years ago. So I've been teaching for 15 years in elementary school. It's, I teach in high school now. And so I, I've been teaching in the high school for quite some time. But just as I started teaching, there was a program where there were a few students, a handful of students that were coming from another district that was completely the opposite of my the district I work in. And there were students that were coming and spending a couple of days in our school. And then we were doing like an exchange program. It was culture shock. The insightful discussions that took place from doing that was really pleasant to see. And to see that teenage chatter turn off and the discussions that were, that were meaningful and made the kids really think changed the whole environment of the whole class for that day. Kids were on their best behavior and they were they were trying to represent their school. I, I think that that would be a beautiful thing to do. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, impact of the pandemic. It's been hard for any child or any parent, regardless of resources. But I imagine it's been, for many of the reasons you've mentioned already, particularly difficult for the students in your schools. You know, some, some suggest it's a, a year of lost learning for some. How do you make up for this? How do you remediate it? How do you, what are the conversations that are having, you know, with students or parents or within your buildings? We're going to feel this effect for years to come as these groups come up. There'll be a delay. How they make that up, I, I don't know. We had this overall discussion with our faculty, and for some reason, we have a 9 through 12 school. The 10th graders are by far the most negatively affected. They were freshmen last year. And in your freshman year, just like in your freshman year of college, you are taking in your environment, you're finding your pathway, you're discovering your group of friends. And I feel like when we got shut down, they got shut down. The social aspect is just as equally as important that rite of passage because it's like the mindset of a teenager, the development of a teenage mind is 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 developed through socialization, through through working with peers, finding out who you are from people of your own age. 
a lot of that's been taken away. I think the mask covering is more devastating than the younger children. I've had the opportunity to go into elementary schools this year and just walking back into those great warm environments, um, those little guys don't even aren't even aware the mask is on their face. It doesn't slow them down. They're not it aware of them. It doesn't change their mood. They just live right through it and they adjust. Putting a mask over my teenage students is like pressing the mute button. They won't talk through the mask, they whisper. It was really this, almost like this covering and shutting down that has happened with them. And that's what I've been speaking with other teachers other than just myself and in other areas. That's the struggle. This is like a curtain or a wall. There are some students that have pulled away socially. And even though they are now getting the opportunity to maybe be around friends, they're choosing not to, or mm -hmm. they're feeling angst as if like they shouldn't be getting together. My students have become so reliant on using the internet and Google for everything. That's going to be a huge eye-opener for them next year. We've already started now with, with paper and pens, you know, not hiding behind their screen, making sure that they're focused on the, the class that they're in and relying on their memory. The school day is over and now you're back in your car and you're driving home. What does that drive feel like? Like, how do you feel at the end of a school day? Does it immediately sort of find itself in your kitchen table about sort of the things you've just experienced? Yeah, this year for sure. Yeah. I feel like our kids have just known to give us space when we get home and let mom and dad talk about the day or the frustrations. There are definitely good days, but this year has been extremely hard on everyone. I, I wonder if you could point to a couple of bright spots that maybe you've experienced. Maybe it's some of the project-based learning that you've done or something where, in spite the challenges of this last year, you can look back and say, you, you were proud that you were able to make this difference or that you're glad that you were able to help a student who was struggling or see someone, you know, maybe you were just blown away and impressed by a student who was able to you know, somehow make the most of what was a challenging year. That's the beautiful thing about our job. We get feedback all the time from our students. I had a student just recently who came up to me and just wanted to thank me because I, I didn't yell at her or give her a hard time and she came back from being out for like 32 days straight. And it was, it was for a good reason. There was sickness in the family. She was quarantined. The whole family had gotten the virus. And she was overwhelmed because she was taking care of siblings and she didn't have, she had so much work to get caught up on. I just listened to her. I said, well, just tell me your story. What, what happened? Why, why were you out? Instead of yelling at her about all the assignments she's missing and at just assuming that she's slacking, which you do get that a lot. You get a lot of that frustration from teachers that just, they're expect, they need these expectations met by you. Their effectiveness is, is graded upon it. This year I knew right away I was changing my program and I was switching it into doing all project-based things that were all stemming on social emotional learning. So I was giving my students this opportunity during this time to take a mental time out and be creative and be introverted, think about their thoughts, using the visual arts as communication. 
And I've gotten a lot of feedback from students on how they really loved the class and it was what they needed. It helped them a lot. So I think that was the only section of time in their life that they actually had something like that, an avenue to escape to. I personally need more than that in my life to be a healthy person, mentally and emotionally. I feel really good about this year for that. I might need some therapy, but I, I really feel that there were some students that were having some really dark times and I gave them some good tools to, to use to help them through it. Students will let you know when, when you've made a difference. They'll let you know 10 years from now when they come back to visit you. So when they call you for your birthday. That's the priceless part about being a teacher. Thank you for listening to A Tale of Two Teachers, a WLIW-FM special program distributed in part by Chasing the Dream, a public media initiative from PBS flagship station WNET in New York, reporting on poverty, justice, and economic opportunity in America. Major funding for Chasing the Dream is provided by the JPB Foundation with additional funding from the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund. This show was a production of Moving Up and was edited by Luke Robert Mason. Music is by Johnny Most Davis. I'm Bob McKinnon, your host of this program and of the podcast Attribution. Our final credit goes to all the students, teachers, administrators, parents, and others who answered the call best summarized by civil rights activist Ruby Bridges, who at six years old became one of the first black children to integrate New Orleans' all-white public school system. Her words and our challenge, we have to take care of each other's children.